Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, uh, January the 10th. And of course, we're all thinking about the same thing. Uh, The images of American history are now ingrained, uh, burnt, I think, into our consciousnesses. Tim Schneider had a great piece in the Times, New York Times this morning about uh, the mob that stormed the Capitol. And, and these are the images, of course, that we're not going to forget for many years, perhaps for our lifetimes. Um, for those people just listening, images of, uh, of people stealing the, the speaker's podium, of, of, of QAnon people with the children cry out for justice on, on the podium, uh, guys looking more like wolves than human beings, um, above all else, uh, nooses uh, uh, symbolizing people being hung, whether it's Pence or, or, or leftists. And perhaps above all else, um, for, for this discussion, uh, images of hate. Uh, there's the famous image of, of, of the man with a beard in a Camp Auschwitz uh, jersey. There are other characters with the 6MWE symbol meaning six million wasn't enough. Uh, What we're living in, I think, has become clear this week is that America rife with hatred, ethnic hatred, hatred against Jews, hatred against blacks, hatred against leftists. So what do we do about it? One guy who has spent a lot of time thinking about hatred, how we punish it, how we accept it, is my guest today, um, uh, Frederick M. Lawrence, Fred to his friends and and to us in this conversation, is the author um, of a book, Punishing Hate. He's he's a graduate of Yale Law School. He's a former uh, president of Brandeis University, one of America's most distinguished educationalists. And he's currently the CEO of Phi Beta Kappa. Uh, Fred, how shocking, uh, given that you've spent your lifetime thinking about and covering hatred. How shocking was this week? I would say in some ways it is a extension of what we've been living with for the past years, but in some ways it's discontinuous. So what do I mean by an extension? There has been so much dangerous, loose talk uh, about others, uh, othering people, uh, as opposed to we're all Americans. These are these are separate from Americans, or these are different kinds of people. And it's been infused with this kind of delegitimization and hatred. So to that extent, what we've seen is the logical and terrifying uh, logical extreme of it. But the fact that it should take place at the Capitol building is is extraordinary. And I think that image that you have right now, you know, of the the scenes in the Capitol, but of the noose over the the dome of the Capitol. uh, Look, I think of myself not as a naive person. I spent five years as an assistant U.S. attorney. but who amongst us doesn't have some, uh, you know, charge in the, uh, you know, uh, 
in your feelings about you know, you know that that quickening of this of the heart when you see the dome of the Capitol. That is the symbol of the American democratic experience for the past two almost and a half centuries, and for that space to be attacked, you know, Andrew, you hear interesting language, people describing it as a desecration of the Capitol. Desecration is a, is a is a sacred word, not a secular word. We tend not to use that. You wouldn't it's say an appropriate you, word, though, Fred. But it is a it is given a the way people behaved. Um, the well, the the um, the, uh, the the literal desecration, the taking over of people's offices, the the, the use of, of of Congress as a bathroom, shockingly, it, the it complete fundamental and, disrespect for this 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 symbol of American democracy. So, you know, when you talk about what makes hate crimes different, part of it is the very act of a hate crime is to is, is to communicate not just the violence, but to communicate a, a delegitimizing message, a message that is aimed at an individual and through that individual to a group. And in this case, to an entire society. That's why people are, in my view, properly referring to this as domestic terrorism. Terrorism is a political manifestation of violence. It's a political manifestation of criminal behavior, and that's what you have here. Fred, you're an authority uh, on, on the law and hate crimes. Two stories particularly I'd like to talk to you about. The first um, is the the legal aftermath. Uh, the, the news this morning is that one of the guys with an assault rifle has been charged with threatening Pelosi. And of course, uh, uh, Donald Trump himself has been thrown off Twitter. Um, what's your sense of the legal landscape? Is American law ready for this or does it need to be changed? I think the law gives us a lot of tools to use here. They're tools that we haven't really fully utilized before, but I think they can be used here. So let's start with the the second one, which legally is easier, it policy matter might be more complicated, but legally it's easier. There is no First Amendment right to be on Twitter. Twitter is a private company. It's a private platform. Uh, they can exclude you. They can keep you on. They can't discriminate on the basis of race, for example. We have civil rights laws about that. Um, but there is no right of free expression that you can exercise against a company. There's a right of first under the First Amendment that you can exercise against the government. So if the government were to tell President Trump that he can't talk anymore, that would be a violation of the First Amendment, but not Twitter. Uh, incidentally, it was interesting to hear uh, Joe Scarborough um, referring to Josh Hawley, who said this was a big violation of his First Amendment right when he lost a book contract over this. Um, Josh Hawley knows better than that. Josh Hawley went to Yale Law School, a place I, I know well, having taught there and having gone there myself. Josh Hawley knows better. He has no First Amendment right to have a book published. That's called the market speaking. He just doesn't like what the market is saying to him. But, but Fred, uh, libertarians both on the left and the right are outraged by this. Some of my friends who hate Trump are sending me pieces. I just got a piece uh, sent about the woke purge. The left now is banning all free speech, supposed free speech on Twitter. The argument is that Twitter allows uh, the, the autocrats, uh, the, the tyrants in Beijing, and Tehran and Moscow on Twitter, why are they throwing Trump off? Twitter's making a business decision. Twitter's got rules about who may or may not be on their platform. Uh, ironically, uh, Twitter is protected in spite of the fact that President Trump would like them not to be protected. If President Trump had his way, 
Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act, which has gotten a little bit of play recently because it was part of the last minute legislation in the lame duck session, that provides that things that are said on the, uh, on the platform, like Twitter, are the responsibility of the person who says them not on the platform itself. Right, so Section 230, what's your position on 230? I've always been quite sympathetic to making these internet companies more accountable. The irony, of course, is Trump wants to do away with Section 230, Correct. which Correct. is protecting him. Yeah, I, I think I actually, ironically, I agree uh, with Twitter about 230, and that's exactly the reason that I think it boomerangs back on Trump. Um, I think that the, the Twitter is free to run itself as a business, and we are living in an odd time where private business is one of the main ways in which we communicate. But let's be honest here. He has lots of ways of communicating. He can put out press releases. He can use the White House Twitter feed. You know what he can't do anymore? He can't work end runs around the government structure. He has to now work with his own press people, which he's been trying to work around. So now he actually has to work with them. But he's got lots of ways of communicating. Nobody's silencing him. Fred, uh, your book, uh, uh, Punishing Hate, came out a few years ago, claimed legal work on the laws around hatred. Has hatred changed uh, since you wrote that book over the last 20 years? I think so. Um, I think it has changed in a couple of ways. One uh, is that you can't underestimate the impact of social media. Words that are said one place can instantly have an impact in so many other places. It used to be that if you were going to threaten somebody, you either had to be physically proximate to them or you had to have touched an object, a letter, let's say, that goes into their hands. Now, because particularly young people live in cyberspace, you can threaten somebody and you can make their life impossible without ever coming anywhere near them, all being done virtually. So I think that's a bigger problem. And then, Andrew, I think the other thing that has changed in a way that if you'd asked me five years ago, I would have said is impossible, is that there is a kind of imprimatur for some of this hatred at the, at the highest levels. I mean, it used to be that the, the president and other major figures in our life were the ones who would sort of tamp down this and that the hatred would be underneath it. We've never had this kind of validation from the very top. And we're gonna see over the next couple of years whether things go back to the way they were or whether we've entered a terrible new phase. It's a very interesting question that you bring up. We've, we've had a number of um, writers on the show talking about this populist strain in the Republican Party, its rise over the last 40 or 50 years. We had uh, Julian Zelitzer from Princeton about burning the house down, his, his book about uh, Newt Gingrich. Mm -hmm. And of course, we had Rick Perlstein on with his, his, his big hit, Reaganland. Perlstein, one of the great chroniclers of contemporary republicanism. Is there some disease within contemporary republicanism? Can we trace this hatred back to Reagan, back to Gingrich? I think if you go all the way back to Richard Nixon and the so-called Southern strategy in 1968, I think the Republican Party looked to a certain part of the population for a base of their votes, not the only people who support the party to be sure, but they made a kind of unspoken pact uh, with a kind of populist movement that now has come full bore so that you've got uh, Trump not just dealing with that in part, but actually making that the center of his message. So there is a nativism 
that is part of the center focus of the Republican Party right now. And I think what you're seeing is a lot of leaders in the Republican Party waking up in a sense. The, the fever has burst and asking themselves, is this who we want to be? Is this who we are? The problem is it's not just like a fever that's over. This has been, now I'll mix the metaphor, this has been pretty badly baked into the cake now for half a century. It's going to take a while to restructure a party that's not relying on this support. Get into the minds of some of these people, Fred. You're a someone who's who spent a lot of time around students, younger people. Um, you're a national commentator for, for, for a number of years. What are we to make of, of people like this who wear Camp Auschwitz sweatshirts and six million wasn't enough T-shirts? These people aren't scholars of the Holocaust. They know very little about it. Has free speech become so absurd that people feel they can literally say anything? Because after all, you know, along with nooses, making fun of the Holocaust is really the cardinal sin, uh, which in America you can do. Of course, in Germany, you'd be in jail for that. That's right. Um, Germany, uh, it's against the law to fly a swastika. Uh, Germany, it's against the law to deny the Holocaust. There are other countries where that's true. The United States, for reasons that I think are good ones, even though it pains me sometimes to, to watch these things play out, but for good cause, I think the United States believes that unless you are behaving in a way that is directly threatening to another, that you are permitted to say things. But isn't isn't this threatening to, to any Jew, any Holocaust survivor, any human being? People would be celebrating Auschwitz or the, the death of six million people in gas ovens. You know, this goes back to the most famous case of it in, in our lifetime, um, the case in Skokie, Illinois, when the neo-Nazis wanted to march in Skokie. Um, and what the uh, decision of the Supreme Court was that they were entitled to march, they couldn't threaten people, um, but they were entitled to march, they were entitled to demonstrate. Now, the people of Skokie said, just seeing them is threatening to me. Uh, and the answer of the court, and I have to say, I would agree with the court on this, the answer to the court was, if there is a particular threat aimed at you, but ex expression of views, even hateful views, even disgusting views, the law is the beginning of the discussion, not the end of the discussion. You have many rights that in a civilized society you ought not to exercise that civilized people, decent people, would not exercise. This brings us back to Josh Hawley. He has the right to say the things he's saying, but there will be consequences, and that's what he's seen. The market is speaking, and there are consequences. Well, we say that at the moment. Who knows? I mean, supposedly, there are consequences for Trump. All, the, the national debate now is about whether or not we should, uh, we, uh, the, the, the judiciary or Congress, should, um, should remove him. What's your position here, uh, Fred? Should should Trump be done away with? I, I think there's a very strong argument for removing him uh, because the the very the very act the, the very fact that you and I are discussing whether or not what the president of the United States did was legally incitement of a riot a riot that gave rise to death which is then becomes as a technical matter what we call in the law felony murder. The very fact that we're having this discussion means that we're way past the line for what a president should be. Whether this technically would be a crime of incitement on his part, that's something we can talk about. But I think it is very clear that that is an impeachable offense. So is there time for him to be removed? Now you're moving into things that are you know, better asked to people up on Capitol Hill. But is there an argument for removing him from office for this behavior? Absolutely. 
Oh, you, you were president of Brandeis University, one of your former graduates. I don't know if you know her. She's written a wonderful book, Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, about the rise of contemporary right. authoritarianism, obviously in America, in Turkey, in, um, in, uh, in Hungary, in, in Poland. Is there something particularly male about this new intolerance, this hatred? I mean, there are women, of course, Right. More on the, the QAnon front than on the, the neo-Nazi front. What's gone wrong with American men, Fred? I think many of them feel left behind. Many of them feel a threat that society is changing out from under them. Uh, it is becoming more diverse. It is becoming more acceptive of different kinds of people. And their response to it, we're talking in broad brush here. This doesn't describe everybody uh, who supported President Trump, to be sure. But I think it does describe the ones in that Capitol Hill riot. Uh, they feel as if their time is uh, is running out and they're going to do something dramatic. They're going to do something violent to, to try to capture it. It also speaks to the desire to have a authoritarian leader, somehow that connection with the strong man. Um, we've been talking more about books and we'll continue to, but if your listeners uh, want to see a, a movie uh, adaptation of a, of a great book, All the King's Men, uh, Robert Penn Warren. Uh, it was a great movie adaptation. And that last scene when he is on the steps of the courthouse and the people are connected with him directly and he is saying, I am you and you are me. Um, people are drawn to that, but it's very, very dangerous. That is the end of a liberal democracy as we know it when you start down that road. Fred, you and I are privileged, successful people. You're in your home in Washington, D.C. I'm in Berkeley, California. The middle of America is decimated. We've, we've had a number of shows about this. Last Sunday, we had four authors all writing about the same crisis, the, the collapse of, of, of small-town life in America. Uh, the National Road, Liar Circus, Mill Town, and Fucked at Birth. Um, is this an issue that needs to be addressed alongside um, the, the, the more narrowly legal issues that we've been talking about today? Absolutely. I mean, what's undercutting a lot of the legal issues that we're talking about uh, are people who feel left behind. Some of them are just worried that their, their ways of life are being lost. But some of them have very, very legitimate claims. Uh, and I think one of the things that's interesting when you hear President-elect Biden talk uh, he is very careful always to talk about bringing everybody along. Now, not everybody's going to agree with everything he does, to be sure. But he seems to think, and I think he's right, that that is going to be one of the most significant challenges. You have some people who are never going to buy in. But I think for a lot of people, they legitimately feel left out. And if a society is going to work, ultimately, it's based on legitimacy of all of its citizens. They have to believe they are represented by- I agree society. with you. I think Biden is, is rather weak on this front. We've had a number of people on the show talking about the crisis of the American meritocracy. I don't know if you know Daniel Markovitz's work, uh, Yale Law yeah. School, uh, Michael Sandel, talking about the common good in a culture of winners and losers. You're an old university man. I mean, you're not an old man, but you're certainly a university man. You ran Brandeis for a while. You've been in and out of universities for a long time. Um, I know a lot of your work as the CEO of Phi Beta Capital is focused on making further education more inclusive. Well, I think it's a false dichotomy. I, I think it's not that they shouldn't be meritocratic. We always want to be recognizing uh, excellence in everything we do. Uh, we're in the middle of the uh, of the football 
uh, playoffs now that will ultimately lead to the Super Bowl. We're trying to recognize who's the best football team of the year. Uh, when we have races, we try to recognize who runs the fastest. So there's nothing wrong with a meritocracy as long as it is open and an inclusive and it is based really on, on merit and as open as possible. So I think there is something to the overemphasis on competition, uh, but to me, the role of liberal education in this country is to provide opportunities for as many people as possible. And it has been a transformative experience for generations in this country. You know, farmers who became uh, the, the leaders of all the various sectors in our society, and immigrants who've done that, um, uneducated parents who gave rise to brilliant children who had the opportunity. So yes, we have to do that. Is Phi Beta Kappa um, based on recognizing the top students? Of course it is. And it is using that platform to recognize the importance of the liberal arts and sciences for all students. Do you know where there are some of the most uh, um, focused today on growth in liberal arts are in community colleges and instruction in our prisons? So the liberal arts is not an exclusive elite province. It's for people who wish to have their minds opened and explored. Uh, you, you talk to people who have taught Hamlet in community colleges, and they'll tell you about students who understand what Hamlet was living through in a way probably better than in some of the places where I've been, the students understood what Hamlet was living through. You're, uh, as I said, a, a, a veteran of, of the universities. Are you at all troubled by the so-called woke community of people who are, who are silencing uh, people they don't want to hear? Is this real we've had a number of shows about it there are strong views on both sides some people who believe it's resulting in a new kind of orwellian uh, conformity on our, on the other people who say it's simply exaggerated that it's just the the province a few yeah. elite colleges like yale and harvard getting obsessed over stuff that doesn't really impact on anyone else well i i think that it is somewhat exaggerated i think there is plenty of uh, conservative as well as liberal speech on most campuses. Uh, is there a measure of self-censoring uh, that some students and, and faculty experience where they don't want to share some view because they're afraid how it's going to land? Um, there is some of that, and I think to a certain extent that's a concern. But part of what that self-censoring about also is people understanding uh, that for decades a, a level of insensitivity uh, has been part of our general conversation. So no, I'm not a believer in censoring speech. Uh, I'm not a, in regulation of speech. In fact, I tend more towards the First Amendment, um, I don't want to say extreme position, but a, but a pretty robust First Amendment protection. But to me, that is only the threshold question. The fact that speech is protected doesn't tell us that speech ought to be used. You know, free speech is a valuable, piece of what makes our society work, but it exacts a cost. It's a cost worth bearing in a free society, but it is not a cost that is always borne equally by all members of the society. There are some people who pay more than their fair share for speech that is homophobic, for speech that is misogynist, for speech that is anti-Semitic. And so I still wouldn't restrict it unless it's threats, but I think it's important for the society at large to respond to those things and say, that's not who we are. This is who we wish to be. This is how we want to represent ourselves. That's all very well, Fred, but this is who we are. We've, we've had these images now uh, flash across our screens. And in the age of COVID, of course, right. in addition to these images, we are increasingly dominated by anti-vaxxers. 
Uh, at what point do we need to control speech when it comes to the anti-vaxxing debate and its impact on America generally in terms of our health? You know, I, I, on this one, I still go back to what Louis Brandeis said about a century ago, that in the absence of incitement of imminent lawless activity, I'm going to pause there for a second, we have seen incitement of imminent lawless activity within the last week. So this is not an abstraction. But in the absence of incitement to imminent lawless activity, the answer to bad speech is indeed more speech. So people are going to be anti-vaxxers. The answer to that is not to prohibit them from saying what they're saying. I don't want to live in a society where speech is controlled that way. But it is terribly important that we have a full bore exposure of what, what true scientific information is. And, and this is where it starts at the top. But what happens in the next two years if Trump's stab in the back lies become accepted by 30, 40, 50 percent of Americans? I, you know, I'm going to I'll answer your question in a second, but I'll tell you, um, I gave this a speech some years ago. It was actually at Hebrew University after the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. Um, and there were Israelis, Americans, Germans and Brits uh, among us who were speaking. And I gave a the take on violence conducive speech, very similar to what I just said to you about the need to protect speech that's not literally uh, threatening. And a German scholar, who not surprisingly took a much more um, restrictive view of speech, having lived through the, the period of the Third Reich, and he said to me, if there were brown shirts on Fifth Avenue in the 1930s and 40s, I bet you'd have a different view. I said to him, I bet you're right. So you're asking me, how close can we get to having brown shirts on Fifth Avenue before I say I would have a different view of the First Amendment. And what I'm going to say is that we've had our approach to free expression for about a quarter of a millennium. It has served us very well. Uh, I am prepared to rethink it if circumstances dictate otherwise. But for right now, I think the answer continues to be the importance of building consensus uh, in opposition. And it's not just a left and a, um, you know, left versus right here. It is science versus non-science. It is normal versus abnormal. And I think a new leadership that opens the windows and lets in some fresh air may very well reset our whole discussion. Well, we need that new window and we need guys like yourself who, 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 who have thought this thing through in a very reasonable, calm way. Your book, Punishing Hate, is, is worth rereading or, 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 or reading for the first time. It's an Thank important... You. Uh, scholarly legal book about the limits on free speech. I know, uh, Fred, you're working uh, on a new book. Uh, I, I am. Uh, these issues as well. What, when will it be out and what's it about? Well, it's about the what's, it's called the rise of the campus council. It's about the way in which law has played an organizing mechanism on the university campus. Um, it should be out um, possibly in another year, a little more than that. Um, campuses have changed so much between COVID and all the events you and I have been talking about um, that I'm sure, you, Andrew, you know the expression, there are two kinds of books, those that are published and those that are behind schedule. Uh, so this is, um, this is in that second category. But within the next few years, I hope it'll be out. Uh, it's with Princeton University Press. Well, hopefully not in the next few years. And when it is out, Fred, I want you to come back on and talk about it. It's been a real honor and a delight to have someone so reasonable and calm talking in the midst of our strange and frenetic times. Um, uh, Fred Lawrence, thanks again. A happy Pleasure. 2020, happy and a healthy 2021. And as soon as the new book's out, we'll have to have you back on. I will look forward to it. You stay well and stay safe. Pleasure being with you.
You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.